Hey there, dear listeners, and welcome to the podcast Bound in Pale Leather, a podcast about the chronicles of the Kinserath by P.C. Hodgel. I'm Catherine. And I'm Gabe. All hands and gates be open to you. So this week we're discussing chapter 8 of Godstock, Voices of the Past. Our trigger warnings today relate to animal cruelty, facial trauma, and suicide. Gabe, would you mind hitting us up with that summary? Absolutely. So in this chapter, Jame finds all her plans on hold while she waits to see if the Kendar she took in will live or die. And now stranded in Titastagon after the close of the travel season, Jame experiments on a god, nearly gets killed by Bordas, and nearly kills him in turn, and accidentally screams her new best friend out of a near coma. <laughs> My god. In true Jame form. Oh, it's so perfect. It's so perfect. Okay. I had so many notes for this chapter because even though it's a relatively short chapter, it's packed with so much information. Yeah, this is a 23-page chapter, and it's like four to six pages of that are just info dump. Just info dump. It's so, okay, I just I just want to be clear about, I, I know that there are a lot of times when we say how much we love this person or that person, but Mark is so phenomenal. He is basically, he's basically a great big walking Afghan that's just been taking out, taken out of the dryer. He is so comforting. I love him so much. Every time he shows up, I just kind of relax a little bit. <laughs> so Mark is, of course, the Kendar whom Jane took in. And he fell sound asleep and he sleeps straight for three solid days. And then he wakes up and is basically a zombie. And Jane is actually really concerned about this. And I think this speaks a lot to not only the... Yeah. James' experience growing up in the haunted lands, but also about the Kenserath people themselves. Yeah. Because James recognizes that um, he may actually have given up his will to live. And there's this really neat interchange between James and Kithra, who very mean-spiritedly suggests that Mark might just be weak you know, dull-witted. He might just not be very intelligent. And James says, actually, this is something that I saw a lot as a, as a child. Younger than the age of seven, let's just be clear that what James remembers from the Haunted Lands is before the age of seven. So... Yeah, just really drive that one home because this is about to get kind of emotionally upsetting given in that context. And what James relates is that there were times in the Haunted Lands Keep where life was so hard that some of the Kendar just decided that they were done. And they would just go sit in a corner and they would just decide a little bit like, you know, <laughs> I think of Aragorn, son of Arathorn, in one of the appendices of the of the Return of the King, where he's just like, yeah, you know what, I'm done. I, I think I'm, I'm done now. I'm, I'm just done gonna... now. Like, yep. I've lived a good life, Absolutely. I've been a good king, and I'm done. Except in this case, it's more like, I live in a hellscape, and everything is horrible, and I don't want to live here anymore under the control of, like, 
my horrible lord and but that's something that's so powerful because what jame relates is simply the level of despair that the kendar felt in the haunted lands keep because remember she relates this from when she was seven years old we don't find out yeah. about why the context is of what the context is of their life there until after the kendar wakes up but what, what Jame recognizes is that if this Kendar truly decides that he's done, it would be dishonorable of her to prevent him. And that, I think, kind of... I remember in the last chapter, we were talking about Jame's recognition of that honor is something that extends beyond herself and how she can't only think about honor with regards to her actions and her own life but she needs to begin she recognizes that she needs to begin to think about honor in the context of how her actions impact other people and this is a wonderful glimpse into a further formation of james character as an individual yeah and more than that like we're not given the full structured details of how this works just yet and i think we're not given the full details of this until darker the moon actually and when we get a more up close and personal glimpse of what the kenserath main civilization is like but the kenserath have a structure for suicide both assisted and independent and she mentions that some of the Kens kendar who decided to commit suicide at the Haunted Lands Keep, asked for the white-hilted knife, which over time we learn is like the ritual suicide blade of the Kenserath. Yeah, th and there's there's like a social structure in place for that, both in the event of, as we learn, dire injury, and in the event of just like this kind of thing, where these people in the Haunted Lands Keep just didn't want to go on and couldn't face the reality of how legitimately miserable their lives were and like that's something that jame is familiar with because she's she's kensier and that's what you learn as a kensier child yeah no it's it's rough it's rough a lot about the haunted lands keep is rough but jesus yeah yeah because she she recognizes that the only thing that would really knock him out of his stupor is if it's some like a shock, good shock restored because he's yeah a good he's shock. not really it's not like he's not conscious and cognizant like he eats when told to and like does like sleeps when told to and that sort of thing but he's catatonic and so there's a part of jame that's like one good solid shock would probably knock him out of this but it's dishonorable yeah. to provide that shock with the intent of knocking him out of this if he's really decided to die. Yeah. And once again, uh, Jane, we have the wish granted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jane really has a habit of like idly being like, hey, like, you know what would be really useful right now? This thing. And then the universe is like, here's the thing you wanted in the worst possible way. And the other thing to bear in mind is that the Kendar is in this catatonic state. He sleeps for three days, and then he's in a catatonic state for an additional 11 yeah. days. And his catatonic state is more like, he's kind of like a zombie. He's just going through the motions. He will eat food if someone he's watches him, sits there and watches him. And he will, the only other thing that he does is he sharpens his double-bladed war yeah. axe. Um because, so. yeah, I, I mean, I'm assuming it looks like a traditional battle axe. 
Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, like, uh, I obviously don't hold me to that. It, um, but I'm I'm fairly sure it's just a it's a double bladed war axe kind of yeah. standard. But those things are they are huge. Like they're really heavy uh, like <laughs> on today's news i know like a lot of random shit about weaponry because i i'm currently writing a novel that features like a blacksmith as like a major player and like the blacksmithing thing isn't that relevant to the novel but like it's it's something i do a bunch of reading about because i think it's interesting fucking war axes are big as hell <laughs> yeah and yeah. heavy heavy and as so fuck. then you have mark who's just like the beefiest man we learn that we learn a little bit of the chaos that's been ensuing while Mark the Kendar has been unconscious because on the one hand, this Kendar is unconscious, so Jame is in this holding pattern, this limbo state waiting to see if he's gonna wake up basically or let himself die. And so while she's just waiting to see what happens to him, her like her life is basically going on all around her mostly without her. So, you know, the prince, his glory prince Ozymandian comes back <laughs> to be like, hey, like the Batir danced at my party and it was incredible and here's a bunch of money and I would like to hire her to dance again. And Jame and everyone around her is like, eh, that's okay. Like, we're good. Uh, which is how we discover that act- <laughs> while no one has put together that Jame is the Batir, Everyone knows that the talisman just lives at the Resabatir because mm-hmm. <laughs> the guards show up several times to be like, hey, you remember how you have the peacock gloves? Not only would we like the peacock gloves, we would like to execute you for taking them. Um, and and <laughs> specifically, saying. she has this conversation with a guard who like comes up and like kind of cheerfully ransacks her room. And this is how she learns the Kendar's name, uh, because this guy's like, oh, yeah, poor old Mark. And James, like, you, like, you know this man? And he's like, yeah, no, like, Mark, Mark Harn of East Kenshold came down six or seven years ago to deal with the Lower Town disaster with a bunch of other Kennys. I think it's funny that the, like, the entire world of Rathillion calls these terrifying warrior people Kennys. Kennys. <laughs> That's very funny to me, especially since, like, it's clearly not, like, an offensive diminutive. The Kenserath are just like, I guess these people call us that. Okay. Yep, yep. But, so, this man is, like, friends with Mark, and specifically is the person who got Mark to the Resabatir, the Night of the Feast of Fools, because he was like, yeah, no, like, I found him in that alley, and like, he was so clearly out of it and exhausted and sick, so I tried to take him back to the guards' barracks, but he kept saying he had to come here. So, like, here here we are. Brought him to you. Hope you can, like, get him out of this stupor. And this is a really cheery conversation that Jame has with this guard where he's like, hey, like, if you don't tell me where the gloves are, I'm gonna tell him you're a thief. And Jame's like, don't worry about it. I'll tell him that myself. And I don't have the gloves. Like... <laughs> My word of yeah. honor on it. And Sword of Nine Toes is like, well, you know, you can't blame Yeah, and he's crime. just like, you know, it, you're, you're gonna, like, make the career of whatever guard catches you. So if you have a choice in the matter, like, keep an old friend in mind. And I, like, I have to think these two get drinks together or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, and then and he's like, just, you know, remember yeah, a friend. Like, 
start nine toes. Keep That's me in mind if it comes up. <laughs> and then he bows to her in this clumsy kind of way, which is really kind it's of endearing. So sweet. And I love start nine toes. He's this, which is has this like air of whimsy to it. While all of this other stuff is going on, I mean, Jame is kind of surrounded by this swirl of chaos in her life, just in general. But there's there's Lady Millicent I did also want to mention that sending perfume, who keeps sending perfume notes to Too the specifically talisman specifically Jane. Because it just because like Jane, on the one hand because... hey you managed to con me and i'm impressed with that but also i'd still like to sleep with you and it's delightful <laughs> i i again lady melisande is so clearly living her absolute best goddamn life like she's just out there yeah. living the life of luxury and whimsy she desires and like incidentally she yeah. sleeps with people to make that happen and she's just so utterly confident in her own power and like the sway she yeah. holds over the city and she's just like yeah no like i'd like to sleep with that thief yes mm -hmm. please and it's so, so delightful so, have... <laughs> so around jane you have lady melisande who's sending perfume notes to her you have his glory who at first was sending missives offering the batir a money lot to of dance, money and then just has and then just basically has like thugs hovering around the recipateur to see if they can kidnap a little bit the to kidnap or the bad yep. ears which is just hilarious and then you have the guards who are tramping in and out looking for the peacock gloves all while the recipateur is doing this booming business because now it's one of the most popular places in Titastagon to come because the the, the might be dancing she's not because and there are so... guards standing around waiting to kidnap her but like she might be <laughs> What I think is really interesting is that they, they make it clear that the, the Batir will not dance until Prince Oz... You say his, his name. His glory, Prince Ozymardian of Metalondar. There you go. Until he withdraws I was his a town thugs. crier in a past life. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and so... So I think, I, I think that's kind of, you know... There's a it's lot, a lot to unpack. We don't have Jane time right to unpack now. all of that. So in the midst of this, because all of James' plans are, have now like, completely on unraveled around her. You know, all of the caravans have left. There were only three of them who were actually able to only leave. Three, three caravans made it out. The travel season lasted two weeks. And the word filtered down fairly swiftly that almost all of the caravans Hit were... By decimated by brigands and, and everyone yeah. was killed incidentally mortality rate leaving titastagon pretty high huh like yeah it really is. you can check out but and you can so... never leave <laughs> <laughs> so here she is with no no plans left so she just she decides she's going to put all of her energy into solving the mystery of the gods of titastagon so oh, she she has this little routine where she checks on the Kendar and makes sure that he's still alive. And then she dresses herself in a cloak and takes off to the temple district. This, I think, is an interesting detail because Pinari is the master thief, the over... He's, he's the one with the legal right to steal shit in the temple district, which is quite a sentence to say. <laughs> <laughs> and so by that right, Jane can steal anything from the Temple District with no consequences. Well, there are consequences if she gets caught, but anything yeah, she can get away with is basically caught. hers for the taking. And of course, she's yeah. Jane, so she hasn't 
taken anything except knowledge and Lugan's peace of mind. <laughs> yeah, because Lugan, the priest who had humiliated her on the first day that she traveled into Titastic you know, on in chapter Yeah, you know, three? the priest who was specifically told by a fortune teller that he there was a deadly force all too near him and not to make it angry and then Im- immediately you're you're gonna yeah. make it angry but and then immediately cornered jame and was like listen i know he's a pain in the ass but like try not to literally kill him okay yeah yeah him. that guy <laughs> him. so she decides she's gonna use Lugan and Gorgo the Lugubrious, who is the god of that particular temple, as the subject of her experiment. And there's a really neat reflection on faith creating reality and the the consequences that that possibility has, not only on James' understanding of the Kinserath people, but also on what that means for her faith and who she is as a person. Because if faith creates reality, then that means... Basically, James' James' revelation, as she does more and more research about the gods of Titastagon, is that, as far as she can tell, at least in the city of Titastagon, faith creates reality. So the more followers mm-hmm. a god has, the more dedicated those followers are, the more powerful the god is. So, like, you have Dallas mm-hmm. Sar, who's real, real powerful because everyone worships him as the sun god. And... She's like, on the one hand, that's a really tidy solution to a fairly confusing issue. But on the other hand, the implications for the Kenserath are horrifying because, A, this would mean that they had functionally been serving a lie all this time. And B, it would mean that the nightmare god that has been more or less hag-riding them since their creation, since their inception, and who has abandoned them to this, like, careless endless fight down the chain of creation and all of these things it would mean that they had created that god themselves and so she's like on the one hand this would answer all my questions on the other hand there has to be more to it like that cannot be yeah the entire truth because the kensir could not survive it yeah and this is this is the first time that we get a sense of the span of time of the Kenserath, because the Kenserath have been on Rathilian for 3,000 years. But if Jane recognizes that if faith creates reality, then that means that the entire Kenserath people have spent the last 30 millennia, 30,000 years, hag-ridden by a nightmare of their own yeah. making. And the for for context, I want to say humans learned about fire approximately 30,000 years ago. Like, yeah. the scope of what we consider civilization is between 30 and 50,000 years ago. And, yeah. like, that is how extreme, like... The Ken the Kenserath were a fully like evolved complete group of three people. Like on the one hand, you know, Rathilian is kind of a uh, roughly medieval sort of civilization, and the Kenserath are a feudal civilization. But um, like they are, they are not. It, it's not like they were fused together as primitive like Homo erectus or whatever. Like they were. They were themselves, they were done being turned into whatever they were going to be turned into, and that was 30,000 years ago. 
untold yeah. number of dimensional worlds ago. And like, yeah, no, I would be pretty horror stricken too if it was possible that like all of that suffering had more or less been self-inflicted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, I mean, that's, that is truly an existential yeah, In the truest and most and literal so... sense of the word. Jane has a true vested interest in solving this mystery, and she goes hard. Yeah, the way she decides to try and solve this mystery is she tries to prove, since you can't prove a negative, she can't prove that the gods of Titastagon yep. don't exist, she decides to try and prove that they do by breaking into uh, Gorgo's temple and... There is a specific service that is done regularly, and it is supposed to feature a lever that gets flipped and a cascade of water that falls down the face of the idol in Gorgo's temple to symbolize, like, tears and lamentation. And so Yeah, because Gorgo, Gorgo is very compassionate yeah, for... Yeah, and, and his whole thing is, like, crying for the pain of the world and, like... Yeah. I don't know. I think Gorgo's a pretty cool god. I think so Cooler too. later. Jane, quite but... frankly, Jane thinks so and too. She does. Jane uh, thinks she has so some as stuff well, against because... Lugan, but nothing in particular against Gorgo. And so what she decides to do is she decides to block, uh, try increasingly aggressive methods of trying to force a miracle. Trying to, like, force a demonstration that the gods are real. And so she this specific incident is that she puts a like a blockage in the pipes that would normally funnel the water for the like ritual tears and then like goes in and watches the service and is like okay let's see let's see if you can do a miracle and it's implied that she's been doing this for a while and that she has been consistently unsuccessful Largely because when Lugan sees her, he fucking flips shit a little bit. Um, <laughs> which, understandable? Like, I guess if I was a priest and, like, someone was just like, I'm gonna come in here and try and prove your god is fake every day, I, I too would be a little annoyed. But, like, yeah, no, he sees her and is a little bit angry. And Jane makes a hasty retreat. And feels pretty... She's got a bad taste in her mouth. She's like, on the one hand, like, I'm not wrong in that I need this answer. Like, the Kenserath literally will not survive having served a lie all these years. But also, like, I don't know if I like what I'm doing to this guy and to this, like, city and to this god, regardless of whether or not he's real in the way that I, like want him to not be real yeah Yeah. no it's it's a lengthy adventure Mm -hmm. it's as much an experiment for her own curiosity but it also is a really clear development of her personhood of her identity as a person and the formation of her character as a person so from this she goes to the moon to wash out the bad taste of her mouth with some other thief apprentices, and we get to meet Patches. Patches is the little sister of Scramp, uh, whom Jane is kind of taken under her wing, and Patches is fantastic. She's a tough kid. Smarter than her brother, too. 
smarter than her brother, and Jane is teaching Patches the Senathar. And so the reason that we find out, the way we find out about that is that Patches makes a comment on the discussion that's happening about the upcoming election. And the comment that she makes is not only spot on, it's really clever and it's really sharp. And one of the other apprentices who's kind of, you know, Hangrel is kind of a prick. Yeah, I mean, the relevant detail is that he's been trying to curry favor with Bane. So he is not, he's never been popular and he's less popular now. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, he's been trying to curry favor with Bane. I don't know what else there is to say about a person. Yeah, absolutely. And that's just like, you know what? That's just kind of burning all your bridges there, Hangrel. And so Hangrel makes a snap, a sexist snappy comment at Patches and James all James has to do is just say yeah well who invited you and Angro's like I gotta go urgently need to be somewhere else right now (laughs) and for the record I do like I really enjoy the fact that this is a guy who's trying to curry favor with Bane so like for all his other sins he's clearly got a pretty strong stomach and James like puts him in his place with a glance. And, like, because yeah. after after she shuts him down and chases him off, uh, Darren B. says, like, very calmly, what an alarming person you are, Talisman. And I just have to think that in the Thieves' Guild, where everyone is kind of used to thinking of Bane as the monster under the bed, whether or not they personally are at risk of his attention... I have to think that in that environment, seeing someone who has been hovering around Bane get closed down by Jane with one, like, one sentence and a, like, good hard glare must be deeply unnerving. Yeah. And, oh, and I did want to talk very briefly about the election. Yes. So this conversation about the election is mostly about the fact that it's looking to be a really close race, which is unusual. And the last time there was a really close race was with Master Tane, who, again, there is some strong suspicions that Theokondi may, maybe, have used magic to murder this guy in the worst (laughs) available way. Maybe, possibly, might have used magic to soul murder this man. And that was the last time there was a tight race, and that was seven years ago now. And so they're talking about how it's looking to be a pretty close race and every vote is going to count from the landed masters because Theokondi can count on two of the masters, uh, Bane's father, Abateer of the Gold Court, and Master Chardon, who is the politically disinterested master of the Shining Court. And then Mandalus can count on the four provincial masters. Then there's the Jewel Court master, the Master Glass, and then there's Mistress Silver. And Darren B, counting them off, says that at least six of them will go to the highest bidder, which should be Theokondi because he has the guild treasury, but Theokondi is also a miser, and Mandalus has a unidentified but incredibly wealthy mystery backer who is has been helping him bankroll his campaign. I'm having fucking flashbacks to 2016. <laughs> and You're not the only one. And so specifically, the comment that Patches makes is that 
somebody on the Council of Five, the ruling council of Titastagon, is already helping Mandalus because they've refused to pardon Mistress Silver's son, who has been caught three times in six months, no less. It's indi- it's an indication that he's worthless, basically. Um, and Mistress Silver is very competent, but irrationally, like, she, she doesn't act rationally when her son is involved. So, um, if Theokandai can't get her son a full pardon, she won't vote for him. Mm-hmm. And so, Patches makes the very astute comment that someone on the Council of Five, who, who are the ones refusing to pardon this kid, is already helping Mandalus on purpose because they're trying to wear away at his guaranteed support from the Guild Masters. Because mm-hmm. Mistress Silver would otherwise vote for him without a thought. Yeah. And so, it's just, it's this snarled mess of a it's this mess of an election and this mess of a situation and everyone's like well you know a lot of those votes are going to go to whoever can pay them the best and you know in this instance it's a a toss-up between theokandai's guild treasury or mandalus's mystery backer Mm -hmm. yeah this is an election that is fraught with bribery and favors and lobbying and misinformation and mystery and conspiracies and it sounds so fucking familiar and yeah and in the midst of all of this we get a really good glimpse into the mind of darren and i think that this really speaks a lot to darren has a really cool head in the midst of this kind of dumpster fire of a political he is system. the ultimate level-headed like he's the adult in the room basically I, regardless is. of what he room is. he's in or who else is in it darren b's always the adult in the room and i i love him. yes yeah. i love him for it uh, he's <laughs> such a good character well he's he's able to turn on a dime in his thought process and turns from the political situation to his concern for jane which uh, leads him to stating that Bordis is back in town. Bordis is a brigand. He is of the criminal class, and now that the uh, caravan season has been closed because of the weather, he's back in town, and he's spreading the word that he blames Jane for the loss of his eye, and she should be really careful. Uh, they're they're walking back from the moon, and Darren B's like, "Hey, listen. Um, on the one hand, I know you're very confident in your own ability to kick ass and take names, and that's great. But this man is looking to kill you, so uh, yeah. maybe take care." And it does feature one of my favorite descriptions of Jame, or also of the the general experience of being a petite person who reads as feminine in the world yes mother i realized when i was when i was reading this and i was taking notes that it's this section right here that inspired me to give you this book when you were 13 years yeah old. the context here is that i am very small i'm i'm very short and i i went directly from looking like you know 
waifish and model-esque to like an hourglass figure with no in-between. And so I've always been someone who's very small and reads as feminine to the entire world around me. And that means that I get in a lot of arguments and a lot of fights and I get catcalled a lot. And in high school, I was almost expelled for getting in fistfights with people who pulled shit. And so my mom gave me this book when I was 15, 13 with this attitude of like, you're going to relate to the main character in this book hardcore. <laughs> yep. Yep. And may I please, please read it's a great, this? It's a great line. Read, oh, it is. It is, it is really, really good. You were saying a minute ago that you've had enough of being underestimated, which I suppose means of being a target for half the bullies in town. That admittedly is a problem, but it's one I expect you'll have all your life. Very few people are going to give someone as fragile looking as you her due in anything. That may be one reason why Bordas can't accept what happened to him. Even if you didn't wield the knife that maimed him, you were there. You were the cause. For people like him, Talisman, you're a baited trap. They'll never be warned off because they can't admit to any danger. And that, I think, is like, that is the epitome yeah. of Jane. She looks like someone that you could, like, knock over with a breath. And because of that, a baited trap is like the perfect explanation yeah. and description Jame is regularly described as like especially because she doesn't eat all that much she's very very slender she's very delicate looking she has like this bird boned physique that looks like she should be like you just look at Easy her too to hard and she'll fall down and yeah. then she beats the living crap out of you with like an air of ease and casualness that is probably very annoying to a lot of people and like more than that yeah. this this book does a really good job of encapsulating the feeling of like i know and these people know that i can take care of myself but they're still gonna fuck with me just because they don't want to admit that they're afraid of a girl and like yeah god yeah it's it's just very real yeah. it's like a very real feeling of being like no, everyone in this room knows who's going to win this fight, and they're still going to fuck with me. Yeah. Just because, like, they're convinced that this time it'll be different because, like, I'm a girl. Yeah. And Darren B.'s word of caution really kind of is boiled down to a simple thing. It, identifying that Jane is a little bit complacent. She's sick and tired of being underestimated. But Darren B. reminds her not to underestimate other yeah. people. And that's kind of the danger that she's gotten into because, you know, James' response to all of this is, well, you know, boasts break no bones. But Darren B's like, you know, yeah, but other things do. And you may get, be really tired of people underestimating you, but don't underestimate other people. And James is actually pretty cocky about this. She kind of shrugs it off and she's like, well, you know, don't worry, I'll be safe. I'm going to climb up on the rooftops and run across this, the tiled roofs of Titastagon at night. Because that's and safe. like, okay, whatever. <laughs> you have a funny idea of what safety is. And so she takes off to go walk yep. her cat. Which incidentally, like, love that. But yeah. It, I also really enjoy that it's mentioned briefly while she is walking her cat that she's always very paranoid about walking her cat past the catteries because she's just waiting for someone to pop out and be like, that's a fucking royal gold. What'd you steal? And for her to be like, I said I wouldn't say it. I promise I didn't steal this cat, but I can't tell you where I got it. 
Yep. So in between the time that she leaves Darren B and she's actually walking Joran <laughs> through the wilderness, there's a beautiful description yeah. of Titastagon at night and and the landscape around Titastagon. And it's really, I mean, we, we don't have time to really explore the lyricism of this language and the description and the the lush quality of these words that are woven in such a beautiful yeah, way. Mean, but it is really worth reading these passages and just really taking time to just languish in how beautiful these Yeah, words it also are. wouldn't be good podcast because it would just be us really overusing the word lush. Yes, yes but it would, it, but it, it, it is a beautiful it is a beautiful passage and like like a lot of the city descriptions of Titastagon, it feels very real and very alive in a way that a lot of cities in writing just struggle with. And so yeah, that's been my yeah. that's been what I have to yeah. say on it. Yep, me too. Me too. It's 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 interesting that she takes Joran for a walk. First of all, for exercise, but also to introduce a blind golden ounce, royal golden ounce, to the idea of hunting in the wild. But you know, that's what Jane is going to do. That's how yep, she's living her life. In fairness, this is also with with the reality in mind that Joran will not always be small enough to live in the attic of the Resabatir. <laughs> yeah, because I like. I want to say ounces get, like, they're not as small as a serval because there's no reason not to keep a serval in your house. Like, there are people who keep servals who, like, are not able to be released into the wild. Like, there are conservationists who keep them in their homes. So, like, I want to say Joran gets to be, like, I don't know, like... Cougar. a little bit smaller I don't know if he gets as big as like a mountain lion, but definitely as small as like a snow, as big as like a snow leopard, probably. Like, you know, like yeah, more maybe. compact than a mountain lion, mm-hmm. but still kind of mm-hmm. beefy. Like, if that description yeah. means anything to anyone. Cause, yeah, like, that does. I think. That does. Like, we're never given explicit descriptions of Joran, but I don't, like, listen, I know that. PC Hodgel made some comment at one point in some blog post that I just didn't read because I'm not actually that prone to reading elaborate amounts of uh, authors' blogs because I grew up in an era where J.K. Rowling was like the author present on social media and it's just not going well. Uh, but I think she mentioned something about him being about as big as a serval. Uh, servals are not big cats. They're They're just not. I find that unlikely. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, so she takes him out to go hunting with this kind of attitude of like, well, might as well see if this is even possible. And so it turns out that like hunting basically means the two of them sneaking up on something and then chasing it back and forth between them. Like both of them kind of yelping excitedly while chirping. chirping. They're both chirping yeah, at each other. Which I, I do love, love that. And it, like, it, it goes fine. Like, Joran is able to chase stuff, but he doesn't ever chase things once they, like, actually get away, and he doesn't really have the killer instinct. He's just yes, like, this yeah. is a good game. Like, we're just terrorizing some rabbits. It's fine. Yep. While they're out there in the wilderness at oh night... Oh my god, yes. Jame is aware that there is another presence in the hills that really has Joran very excited. And it's it's a very specific presence, and Jame is almost psychically connected to it and aware of it, and aware that that presence is an Aaron Ken. 
And so it makes sense that Joran would be yes. excited about that because it's like the you know the great grandfather, the biggest of big lions. cats, the biggest of big cats. And uh, Jane is aware that she's being watched, and she remembers the stories of the Aaron Ken. And so in this moment of um, uh, I mean, um, okay, so the reason we're kind of trying curiosity? to juggle words here is that Jane tries to psychically connect with an Aaron Ken. And the res- God, it's really good. The very quality of the silence that came in response, as though to a child who had spoken out of turn, had so abashed her that she had not tried again. She'd been shut down. She'd been shut down. I mentioned so hard. this briefly. Outside of everything, I just think it's really funny that the Aaron can clearly think of themselves as the adults in the Kenserath. <laughs> That's just really funny to me. That really is. So, you know, the the hunting has ended. Uh, The hunting has ended, and they're headed back. uh, It's around dawn that they're heading back to Titastagon. And Jane is just walking along, and her passage is interrupted by a single burly figure whom she recognizes just as the club is headed her way. She recognizes that that burly figure is Bordas. She is nearly killed. Yeah, this fight goes bad for her really, really fast. Because there are several people, all with clubs, and the first person manages to knock her down and out, and then the second person grabs Joran, and she sees them pull a knife with the intent to slit Joran's throat, and she just immediately, I mean, she loses it a little bit. She, she's, she kind of enters a berserker rage, almost. She screams and lunges and doesn't remember much of what happens, except that she she sees Bordas's startled expression, and then he was gone, and something else was in its place, gurgling with hands over yeah, its face. Yeah, and she specifically, when she screams and lunges at him, she screams an old war cry of her people that she knows, like, if not by heart, then clearly well enough for it to be kind of a uh, instinctive murder response. <laughs> yes. And right after that scream, someone comes behind her and hits her on the back of the head with a club. And that that literally takes her out. She's she is struck down for the count. She can she's vaguely aware that somebody's standing over her and is she's like, this is it. I'm going to die. And someone rushes up and a deep preoccupied (laughs) voice just goes, pardon. And the person who's about to kill her. His boots leave the ground. There's the sound of someone being shaken vigorously. And then there's a, like, object crashing to earth some 12 feet away while a scream trails after it. So to uh, concisely explain what happened, the very big, very scary Kendar popped up out of the res avatir, booked it over to Jame, picked this guy up by the scruff of his neck, shook him until Mark was satisfied, and then he threw him 12 feet overhand. So that is how buff Mark is. In case you're curious, because this is how this man fights. It's not just like, I have a double-headed war axe, fear me. It's, I'm gonna pick you up and chuck you like a softball. Like... I... <laughs> It's so beautiful. And she's 
she's aware of being carried. Now she's, she's aware that she's in the kitchen. She hears someone say, did you see what that cat did to his face? And she begins to say, it wasn't, it wasn't Joran, it was, and then she's aware that the Kendar just gently puts his hand over her lips and just says, it's okay, you know, it's all okay. And then she's aware of Bartlett Sentenko standing at the street door and says very clearly, I'm sorry, and yeah. then she passes out. Um, and so then... Oh, there's, there's one last, one last thing that I just want to add. Um... There, George, James' skull would have been crushed were it not for the mass of hair that she had tucked up underneath her hat. Yeah. And that's something that I don't think that this is a spoiler to say that jo- it's like uh, half James' the hair she keeps her hair routinely long. saves it's like half her the life. She keeps it long <laughs> after a certain point. It's because she's like, on the one hand, someone can grab this and use it to kill me, but on the other hand, I get hit in the head so fucking much so many times so we get kind of a smash cut to jame being awake yeah, and being on bed after rest sleeping for four days she slept for four days let's just be clear thank thank god yes. for poor sleep the, she's talking to mark and mark is like oh well it was the battle cry like the rathorn battle cry that did it and he specifically says like you know that sound would have raised up anyone who raised anyone who fought under the gray lord up off their pyre let alone out of some like catatonic half coma and james is like you must have moved pretty quick to get there in time like how did you what'd you do jump out a window and he's like no i climbed down two stories of the outside of the building and then to save time i fell the rest of the way and i just want to point out that this is how you know that they're soulmates and destined to be best friends forever because jame is like that's so much something jame would do anyway and just be factual about it no, no, I didn't get there in a hurry. I fell down. I fell down a flight of stairs. I, f- I fell down, not even a flight of stairs, like the exterior of the wall. Then uh, Jame asks him how he ended up in Titastagon, and she intends it to be kind of a simple question, but it, it ends up with Mark telling her his, like, the story of how he came to be, like, a Kendar alone in the Eastern lands with no one with him and nothing, no Lord and no master and no nothing. And it's fucking heartbreaking. Incidentally, Mark is a Shakespearean tragedy in the shape of a man. I gotta say last night, I actually read all of Mark's text out loud. And I mean, this is, it's, it's a reference or resonance to how much of an oral history the Kenserath have. I mean, Mark tells a story so beautifully. There is this sense of, um, this isn't just a story of his life. This is a history lesson into an entire section of a world. And it's really just beautiful. So, okay. Uh, listen, Mom, I know you want to talk about every detail of Mark's story in detail, but... Okay. I don't you you take the lead. So we're going to we're going to power through Mark's story a little bit because it's 6 pages. 6 of them. Or I guess his story is only 5 of those pages. But so Mark tells the story of how when he was a boy, he was he lived in a border keep that was destroyed while he was out hunting. And after his keep was destroyed, he was obliged to go out and collect the blood price for his for his own family and every member of his lord's family. 
because they had been betrayed by a guest who opened the gate in the night to uh, tribesmen from the hills, which we learn a lot more about that later. And so Mark made a name for himself by more or less going full John Wick and just killing his way through everyone who'd been involved with the murder of his keep for an entire winter. And then he just dusts himself off and goes down to the Riverland to look for someone to take him in. And I believe later we're told that he's 14. I wouldn't want to be sworn to that number, but I'm pretty sure he's 14 years old when this happens. And so he's he goes down to the Riverland, the heart of the Kenserath, and goes looking for someone to give him a hearth and a home. And no one was willing to take him in because the highborn make their own rules now they don't take into consideration things like this man lost his his home and his entire family and his entire world and he's 14 and collected the blood price for his whole family and his lord's family just like he was supposed to and so yeah it's and so he he became what's called yandrigon which means like a hearth dweller someone who's kept by a lord with the promise that someday maybe they might be given a place, a permanent place in the household. And so he spent 36 years after he grew up as Yandri for Lord Caneron. And he didn't, uh, he doesn't really care that much for fighting anymore because like he spent that one winter killing everyone in his path to collect his family's blood price and he doesn't really go in for it much anymore. So he mentions that the upside to his size is that no one really cares to fight a man his size in pitched battle. And sometimes he fakes the int- uh, the occasional berserker fit and that just kind of cures people of the desire to fight him on hand. Yeah. And so after those 36 years, he was called back to the Riverlands and his lord took him and all of his other Kendar to fight on behalf of their high lord, Ganth Grey Lord of North, who rallied the central houses under the North Rathorn banner to fight the Seven Kings. And we're not told that much about this battle. We learn later that it's called the Battle of the White Hills. And the border keeps didn't come to support Ganth in the fight, and Ganth went mad just before the battle. And so instead of the Ken- the Kenserath obliterating the Seven Kings, there was a battle and the worst defeat the Kenserath have suffered to date on Rathilian, and Ganth was exiled across the Ebon Bane. And he, he gave up his title and Gave up his off. title and left. And so Mark's te- uh, temporary lord, Caneron, was killed in the battle. And Mark was cast adrift again and wandered east in a similar but different direction to the Grey Lord. And he came across East, east Kenshold, who took him in 30 years ago. And so, and then seven years ago, Hearth sent him and some other Kendar out to help with the Lower Town Monster, which is how 
Mark is familiar with Titastagon and also with Ishtir, who has apparently been priest in Titastagon for minimum 27 years. Mm-hmm. No acolytes. The previous round of acolytes were sent away while Mark was there. And he said that he had never seen Kensir look so scared. And James like, that's weird. Like, I, I faced the lower town monster and it's spooky, but it didn't panic me. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, yeah, no, listen, Ken- Titastagon was in bad shape that year. Like, the Thieves' <laughs> Guild had just been t- overturned by the election. Master Tain had just been assassinated. Like, the lower town was in chaos. We spent all our time fighting, like, street thugs and, f- like, facing the burning of the lower town. It was a train wreck. So we went the fuck home. <laughs> um... Yep. And then he tells the story of how he lost his third lord in his lifetime, which is that after they went home, five years after their mission to help the lower town, riders came down out of the haunted lands onto East Ken's hold, and there were only... what? Hey, Mom, off the top of your head, what's a score? It's 20 years? A group of 20 years. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Because... The relevant detail here is that there are only three score of the riders that come down out of the Haunted Lands. There's only 60 riders, and they single-handedly, without so much as a word, kill everyone in their path, enter the keep, search the keep, kill their way out, and leave. Yeah. Like... They don't say a word, and he talks about how they were like something out of an old song in black leather and steel armor, and their swords black with blood. And he talks about how when how they were impossible to kill, and when they did manage to when the East Kenshold warriors managed to draw blood, it bit into their flesh and ate through their weapons. And he talks about how their leader sat his horse on the hilltop watching and as the sun rose and the soldiers retreated they saw the banner of the leader of the force a black horse on a red field the device of Jaredin master of north the man who betrayed the Kenserath to the uh to their enemy Perimal Darkling and he talks about how it took Lord Harth two years to die after that night because their blood got into his body and he just burned slowly and crumbled while still alive for two years. And then yeah. when he finally died, yeah. his son threw out the Yandrigon who had been given sanctuary there, including Mark. And so six of them started out for Titastagon and Mark is the only one who made it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's brutal. Mark is... Mark is a tragedy and I, I'm it's always so rough to read his life story for the first time because I'm just like, God, you he has been through some shit and he has been so ill treated by the Kenserath and yet he still like he still loves his people and he still loves like he still cares about the well being of the Kenserath at large. We we hear him talk a little bit about the new High Lord of the Kenserath, Ganth Greylord's heir. Um, and he's like, I, I wish all the best for him, but like, that's gotta be a rough job. And he's just, he's such a kind person, despite the horrible things he's been through. And it's just, it's really good. It's like, 
Mark is the best person in the Kenserath, and I'm prepared to make that statement outright. Yeah, he really is. First of all, I want to say, very well done. Beautifully summarized. You stayed on task in a way that I was not. I would not have been able to. So I really want to that thank you why for you taking that here. hit for me. Absolutely. That and many other reasons. But, there's, but there is something about that Mark's recognition that he is a part of a much larger tale that spans time. And that, I think, is part of why I so much appreciate and love the tale that he tells uh, and the way that he tells it. And I think that part of what is powerful about Mark's story is that he acknowledges that the world has changed. I mean, Jane, Jane points out that, wait a minute, that's wrong for you who you to have been... There must have been someone willing to take you in after everything that you survived. It wouldn't be fair if it wouldn't be honorable, and essentially. He's just like, and Mark's not fair. simple statement is fairness is not a consideration anymore, not at least for most Kendars. And his simple, almost throwaway statement that the new generation of High Lords don't acknowledge the honor and the space between the uh, that connects the highborn and the kendar and the kendars who are allowed in to be yandrigan are leased out they're for hire they're i mean like the kenserath at large are mercenaries for hire but the kendar who don't have a lord who's taken them in who are just kind of free floating and masterless are are really for hire yeah, and so and it's it's a really brutal way of living and he 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 again he doesn't varnish anything with emotion. He simply states what is with the recognition that life is hard, but we don't have yeah. to be hard. And that's what I think is so appealing about Mark. Mark is very Mark. much someone whose whose life motto is like, "Yes, you're right. The world is a cruel place, so therefore like I should be as kind as possible." And that's, that's exactly. just, it's, oh, it's really nice. lovely. Um, I love him a whole lot. Yeah. But so after he tells Jame his life story, he's like, now everyone told me you were from East Kenshold, but like, I thought I knew everyone there. And he's giving her the chance not to lie, but to like hedge the truth if she wants to. Um, like if she doesn't want to tell him where she's from or, you know, maneuver around the reality of the situation. And she's like, well, nope, I've already committed to, like, telling you the whole, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me whoever helps me tell the truth. But, um, but so she's like, well, I actually came down from the Haunted Lands, a keep near the barrier. And Mark is like, the only thing up there is North Kenshold, and it was abandoned 300 years ago. And so they, they kind of piece together what they think happened, because Jame is like, well, I can tell you with authority, that's where I came from. Um... And they kind of piece together what they think happened, which is that they think um, that... So when Ganth Greylord rode into exile for toward the Eastern Lands, the report was that he died crossing the Ebon Bane. But his people, and so most of his people, turned back when that report came through. Which is how they know. Um, and that being said, some of them continued on past Titastagon during the Dark of the Moon and were never heard from again. And he's like, those must have been your people. They must have ended up at North Kenshold. And James like, okay, but if that's the truth, then why didn't they ever tell me anything about any of this? Like, I've never heard of any of this. It was 30 years ago and she's only 18. So she's like, 
I guess she might be 19 by now. Um, she definitely, she definitely passes a birthday in Titastagon. Um, yeah. Uh, and he's like, well, Ganth would have wanted it that way. Like they were, they were destroyed at the White Hills and the White, and the Seven Kings stripped him of his title and he left in utter disgrace. So they must have honored his wishes after his death and said nothing about it. And he's like, how many of the High Lords of, like, the Grey Lords people are left? And James, like, me and maybe my twin brother and literally no one else. Everyone else was absolutely massacred at my keep. And she she does ask what a Rathorn is because, like, they they don't exist in the Haunted Lands. They are smarter than that. Um, if we're all being brutally <laughs> honest, we meet some Rathorn later and they're smarter than that. Um... And so they're, they're like an that. armored, basically an armored unicorn, and they have like armor down their throat and chest and belly, um, and they have fangs and they eat flesh and sometimes they eat people. Um, but uh, if you took a rhinoceros and a wild boar and a unicorn and put and then them you all gave together, it the temper of like, I don't know, a pissed off fighting dog or like a like a bull, a possum, oh, an American yeah, actually. possum. Well. No, because they're... Uh, yeah, I guess they're as cocky as possums are. Um, but so... Uh, and the th- the only reason I mention that is because... Um, he mentions that the reason... Uh, the original crest of the House of North was abandoned after the fall, which was the black horse on the red field. And Glendar, the High Lord who returned... Who brought the Kenserath through to Rathillion took the Rathorn as his crest after that because it was beautiful and vicious. And I think he also took it, this isn't explicitly stated ever, but um, Rathorn are known for killing horses. So I have to think he also took it specifically as a show of, like, resilience against the Master. Yeah. And I, I yeah. again, much like I'm really into salutes, I'm really into heraldry. And so, like, I just really like... <laughs> she really I just really, really like the symbolism <laughs> there of um, having taken the Rathorn as their crest uh, after the master betrayed them with the black horse on the red field. Uh, so, Jame, upon hearing this description of a Rathorn, is like, okay, cool, I just wanted to check, does it look like this? And she pulls out the ring and finger that she's been keeping in her bag. Um, and she explains what it is, and Mark is like, okay, that is the crest of Ganth Greylord, and therefore is the rightful property of his son, Torysen Blacklord. Your father must have been yeah, really father, trusted by Gant. Your father Greylord. must have been an implicitly trusted retainer in order to be given keeping of not just Gant's sword but his ring. And James is like, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, absolutely. How old is this Torison Blacklord? And Mark is like, I don't know, like thirty maybe. We did some math with things that we know that Mark doesn't. Uh, Torysen would have come into power just about two years ago, so it would have been just after East Ken's hold was sacked. Yeah, yeah. Shortly thereafter. And he talks a little bit about how Torysen Blacklord must have come as a shock to a lot of people because he turned up 
a long time after his father's death with no concrete proof of his heritage who no, no seal no, no seal no sword no evidence of his pedigree except that he just rolled up and apparently just made people believe him and <laughs> oh boy i can't wait for the next book oh. y'all Oh, Holmes. I'm really um, excited for y'all. Everybody, it's going to be so such a great Teresa ride. But so, and Black Lord is in his 30s, and James is like, okay, all right, I'm 18. So there's, so there's no like, way. I'm 18, I, like, yeah. there's no way. And keeps right on trucking, pretty much. And so they... Yep. Well, and here's here's something that's that's speaks a lot to Mark's observation because there's a flicker of pain that crosses Jane's face and she just touches her head tentatively and Mark's like, okay, you need to sleep. I'm going to leave. We're done now. Um, And as he stands up, something falls off of his lap and she's like, oh. Your friend with the incomplete foot. (sighs) Yeah, your friend with the incomplete foot. (laughs) And he says, nope, nope, that's mine. Sartre suggested that I could get a job as a guard. And she's like, oh. Did he now? On that point, <laughs> something you should know. And she tells him about Master Panari and Ishtir's judgment and the talisman and kind of waits for the other shoe to drop, thinking that Mark is going to say, well, that's completely dishonorable. I can't believe that you would do that. And he's like, hmm, well, a priest approved that? Huh, odd. Well, I've made one commitment, you've made another commitment, and if we were sensible people, we would separate and stay out of each other's sight until it's time to leave the city. Are you a sensible person? And James like, <laughs> not really, and he's like, me neither. Like, good talk, I'll see you for dinner. Absolutely, we'll work this out when I'm not on duty. You just rest and take care. And then, in this throwaway comment, says, by the way, your gloves will wear better if you cut slits in the fingertips. Good night. Yeah, again... First of all, this conversation of, are you a sensible person? No, me neither. Good talk. I'll see you for dinner. <laughs> Mark might be the best person in the Kenserath, and he's certainly usually the most sensible person around, um, although he's not really needing to pass a high bar there when Jame is the other person around. But uh, he and Jame are kind of, like, cosmically meant to be best friends because, like, they yes. both have this attitude of, like, well, I'm going to go do some dumb shit. Do you want to come with me? <laughs> and it happens repeatedly in the in this book alone <laughs> with this throwaway line that mark says uh, about stating that your gloves will wear better if you cut slits in the fingertips and then he just takes off it for jane that is her greatest shame for her her claws are actually like they are the most toxic part of who she is. They're, they're the one part of who she is that she feels the greatest amount of shame for, that she judges herself most significantly, and she feels, well, be, she feels all of that because she was expelled at the age of seven by her father once her fingertips yeah, they're, they're visible concrete claws. proof of her chenier nature, and she really thinks of herself as, as fundamentally unclean in some way because of them. Um, yes. And that, for her really shows that, you know, Mark knew the worst about her now, and it did not bother him at all. Either he was unusually tolerant, or maybe it wasn't so terrible to be different after all. It's also just that Kendar super fucking chill, but... (laughs) But I think for Jane, that's, that is, her armor has begun to crack a little bit, and... 
and Mark is the antidote that she yeah. has needed. So, alrighty then. I am I am done with all of my waxing on about um, about this, and you can read the last love to. line. Father, let go," she said in a She said out loud in a low, exultant voice, "To ashes with the past." This has been the podcast Bound in Pale Leather. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please feel free to send us your thoughts and insights about Godstock on Tumblr at the podcast Bound in Pale Leather. Or you can even send us a tweet. Although, in full disclosure, the Twitterverse, it's still a bit of a wilderness to us, but we're starting to figure it out. You can also send us an email at podcastboundinpaleleather at gmail.com. Special thanks to Sam for your comments on CastBox and your email. And your extremely lovely recording of Gemfield's Lament on Tumblr. Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, I wish to give a special thanks to Seth Jones for our music as well. Next week, we will talk about Chapter 9, A Matter of Honor, which is 32 pages long and almost as packed full with good stuff as this one. Yep. (laughs) I'm really excited about the next chapter, kids. (laughs) It's a really, really good one. It's very good. (laughs) It's very, very good. Uh, In full disclosure, this next week is going to be kind of packed with some travel and apologies for any technological problems we had this week as uh, my laptop was being really naughty. Yes, we may encounter a delay in posting this episode, which obviously is not going to help you because by the time you hear this, the episode will obviously be up. But uh, we may encounter some delays in posting it due to the fact that I am going to be uh, far too busy to edit anything and mother's laptop has been doing some really endearing shit where it just stops so yes. um so that may be a minute so if this episode took a while longer we're so sorry if it didn't please disregard carry on <laughs> <laughs> thank you all so much for joining us i'm Catherine, and i'm gabe bye, bye.